from a Roman prison, the Apostle Paul wrote letters to churches. One of those letters that he wrote was to the Ephesians. They were living in a very troubling time and having difficulty facing the troubles of life as being a Christian. Paul wanted to remind them of how precious it was to be a child of God. What wonderful blessings we enjoy as being his children. Paul then makes it clear that not only do we enjoy the privileges and the blessings, but we have some obligations, some responsibilities as well. I want to begin our lesson this morning with asking a question as I have several of our previous lessons. What is the direction of your life? Where are you going? If you were to relate to someone else what you are doing in life, the direction you're going, would you say you're going up or you're going down? Are you going backwards? Are you going forwards? Well, I want to ask, is it seeking the things that are up, things that are above? For instance, in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Paul would say, If then you were raised together with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things on this earth. When Paul wrote the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 14, he said, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Sadly to say it though, some people are sliding back into the world. Their lives are such that they are not progressing going forward. They're not looking upward. They're actually going backwards. Solomon observed in Proverbs 14, 14, the backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. The backslider looks at his own life and says, you know, everything's okay. Everything's fine. I'm enjoying what life I have, and I'm not worried about it. On the other hand, to be good is to look above, to look from God. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 7. Hosea says, My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt Him. Do we live in a world today where so many people claim to be children of God, claim to be following Him, but are not living it in their lives? They are backsliders, as Hosea would call them. Well, Paul will offer a solution of how to succeed as a Christian in this section we're going to study this morning. I want to ask that you do something this morning. I want to ask that if you take your Bible, and I hope that you are bringing your Bible with you to church. One thing that having the scriptures on the screen does is make us a little lazy, but I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, and I want to encourage you, as time permits, that you make notes. I also want to encourage you to do something else. I want you to get your spiritual shovel out because we're going to dig deep into this passage this morning. 
This is not going to be as simple of a lesson as some of our others because it's going to require us to look at it and think about what Paul has said. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at that word circumspectly as it is found in verses 15 and the thought also into verse 16. Then we're going to look at the idea of being conscious of God's will in verse 17. And then in verses 19 through 21, we're going to look about being consecrated to God and what that really conveys. Let's begin now with verses 15 and 16. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Let's take that phrase, see then you walk circumspectly. I would imagine the first thing that's going to come to most people's mind is, what does the word circumspectly mean? Um, I actually talked with a fellow this past week, and I said, uh, I'm having trouble with my Bible software. It doesn't want to uh, identify what that word circumspectly means. He sort of laughed when we talked about it because that word is not a part of our normal language. It indicates being careful being accurate, being precise, being strict. Let me illustrate it to you. Here's a man who's about to walk into a minefield where if he makes the wrong step, he could easily lose life or limb. This man has on the ground in front of him various spots marked. You can step here, you can step here, you can step here. He can navigate his way through a minefield because it's clearly marked where to step. For a person to just go through there haphazardly and not circumspectly would be foolish. If I knew it was a minefield, I'd want to take my time, watch carefully, step carefully, and make sure that every foot was accurately, completely, fully on that right spot. You get the idea now what the word circumspectly means? There are two different ways of interpreting this idea in this passage. It's based on the adverb here, circumspectly. Does it modify the word see or watch? Or does it modify the word walk? I will tell you that if you look at Greek manuscripts, sometimes the adverb is closer to see, sometimes other manuscripts is closer to walk. And so if it is closer to walk, which is what most of the commentators will suggest, in fact, the Expositor's Greek Testament says this, the idea of strict conformity to a standard carefulness against any departure from what is proper to a Christian walk. What he's trying to suggest is the same thing that I used in the illustration earlier is when you are talking about walking circumspectly, I've got to make sure that my spiritual choices, the things that I do are carefully chosen. The other view, as some of the manuscripts would tend to indicate, ought to be careful watching. I think the context indicates more that would be Toward Walt, but the truth is, both of them are true. 
I would want to make sure that if I was going to navigate a minefield, I would watch carefully and I would step carefully. Both of them are emphasized in this passage. So he says, not as fools, but as wise. Fools don't pay attention to what they are doing. They don't think about what they say, how it might affect other people. They don't think about what directions they are going. They just simply are haphazard in this life. Come what may, whatever happens today, I'll enjoy it. Wisdom is the way that God expects us to make our choices in the way we walk. In James chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, he is talking about the kind of wisdom that you and I use to walk in our daily lives. And he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you had bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. The truth is, you look at the way people live, the way people walk. Some people, their guidance is earthly. It is sensual. It is demonic. But those people who walk from God's direction above, do you see a, a common element that keeps coming through in all of this? How, what direction are we going? Is it up? Is it above? Is that what's guiding and directing us? Wisdom is also demonstrated by how we interact with others. He says redeeming the time because the days are evil here. He's talking about how you and I will interact with other people. To the Colossians he said in chapter 4 verse 5, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside redeeming the time. I can imagine living in Ephesus. I can imagine getting frustrated because the days are evil. I can imagine being upset all the time because it seems as if evil has the upper hand. He says walk in wisdom. Live lives that show that you are wise by the way you react to other people. That phrase, redeeming the time, means buying up the opportunity. The truth is, we don't get a lot of opportunities to say the right thing, to do the right thing, to be able to have a positive impact on people. Sometimes when the days are evil, the best we can do is even to be quiet. Do you know how hard it is to bite your tongue when you're used to talking? I want you to listen to what Amos 5 and verse 13 says. One has to choose the right opportunity to speak. Therefore the prudent keeps silent at that time, for it is an evil time. 
When you and I live in our world today, as we navigate, we walk through this life, let's walk circumspectly, let's walk carefully, observing what we say, what we do, how we act, because that has impact on whether or not we will reach others and whether or not our words will be good or bad. Now let's look at verse 17. Second idea, that of consciousness of God's will. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I don't want to be ignorant. I don't want to be unwise. I have to be conscious, which means to be alert, to be awake, to be aware. Sometimes we lull ourselves to sleep going through this life. We're just going through the motions. Do you realize that some people this morning, I'm not saying you, but as the song number was announced, we opened the song and we sing that song to the harvest fields, I will gladly go in the service of my king. Some of us have known that song since we were little babies. Then we sing it, we don't think about what we just sang. The meaning of it. We need to be alert. We need to be conscious. What God's will is for our lives. So he says understand what the will of the Lord is. Too many people simply do not know what God's will is. And in this they are being foolish. I used the illustration earlier about navigating through a minefield. And I pointed out that the places to step were clearly marked. You know that the pathway to heaven is clearly marked. And you say, well, a lot of people are not following it. That's right. Do you know why they're not following? It's because they're ignorant of what the will of the Lord is. That's foolishness, folks. Hosea 14.9 says, who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them. But transgressors, notice that figure he uses, stumble in them. You ask people, is this right or wrong? And sometimes they'll say, well, it could be right. Or If you're dealing with a man who's righteous, he can tell you, is this right or is this wrong? Hebrews chapter 5, beginning with verse 11, he says, Of whom I have many things to say, and heart of interpretation, seeing you have become dull of hearing. For when by reason of time you ought to be teachers, you have need again that someone teach you what are the rudiments of the first principles of the oracles of God, and have come, become such as have need of milk and not solid food. For solid food is for those who by reason of strength have their senses exercised to discern between good and evil. You see, the righteous people know the right direction. The wicked people don't. They just stumble through. They do the best they can. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent. The original King James says, Study to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
Of course, Paul would say here in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3 and 4, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Be a daily Bible reader. Not just a daily Bible reader. Be a daily Bible studier. Now, to the main part of the lesson. This is the part I would say that most of you, when you looked on the screen or perhaps looked in the bulletin, you would have said, well, then he's going to preach on verses 18 and 19. Now, I want to read verses 18 through 21. They are a section, and we're going to talk about the consecration here. And do not be drunk with wine, and which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. If you don't know what the word dissipation means, it means reckless behavior. Excess. It's where a person will just do anything, live any way. Drunkenness is the height of folly. A hindrance to preparation. Imagine, here's a man who's going to go through a minefield... And he's drunk. Oh, he can't do that. Surely he'll wobble and fall. He can't stand up straight. He's going to die. Luke chapter 21 verse 34 says, Jesus speaking, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, cares of this life, and that the day come upon you unexpectedly. What is he talking about? People who are just partying through this life, they're having so much fun, they're looking at everything they can enjoy here in this life, and then all of a sudden, eternity is upon them. Of course, in this context, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But the same thing applies. Just like in the days of Noah, people were going about their everyday activities, enjoying everything, until the flood came. Jesus said there's people whose hearts are going to be weighed down with everything about this life. And they're not going to be ready. Romans 13, 13 says, Let us walk properly as in the day. Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. If you go on to read verse 14, he says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. What you have to realize is this world is embracing drunkenness. Now let me carry you back to when Paul wrote this to the Ephesians. Because sometimes when we look at it, we're looking at it through our 21st century glasses and we don't see it in its first century context. But in the city of Ephesus, just like many of the other first century cities, 
there were temples to Dionysius. And sometimes you'll read it, the Romans call Dionysius Bacchus, the god of wine. You'll see mosaics, you know, pictures made out of tiles on floors. And you'll see the face of an old man with a long, straggly beard. And running down that long, straggly beard is, is wine. First century people were drunks. How bad were they? You go to the cities where they have the theaters. Quite frequently you will find these little wells, what I call them little wells, pits, called vomitoriums. Guess what you do in a vomitorium? You drink wine to the point where you are sick and you go bend over and heave into the vomitorium. Can't you imagine how wonderful that smelled? You see, their idea was life is all about going partying and drinking and getting drunk. Folks, that's not much different than the way many people live today. You go on a cruise and see how many people drink. Go on a college campus. Walk through a dorm. See how many bottles of Bud Light and stuff is lined up along the edge. I'm going to tell you, folks, we live in a society just like that. Ours may not say they're doing it to some sort of God, but... They're doing it to pleasure. You see, if you go back then to that time, those filled with wine believed that they identified with the god Dionysius or Bacchus, giving them special powers. And do you know what went along with it? Immorality. Moral debauchery. Or, as the text here says, dissipation, moral degeneracy. And he says that's the way the world lives. On the contrary, he says, but you be filled with the Spirit. Now, I know when some people hear that idea, being filled with the Spirit, what comes to their minds is... Let the Holy Spirit come dwell in you and empower you and give you some sort of, of uh, direction and guidance. Let me give you an illustration where the Bible uses the idea of being filled with the Spirit. In Acts 2, 4, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And some people are saying, Well, do you mean that God is expecting all of us to have a miraculous indwelling of the Holy Spirit here that it empowers us to speak in other languages which we have not studied? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Because we're in those passages, you read about it coming upon them passively. Here, Paul uses the imperative. Now, if you'll remember from your education days in English class, which some of you may or may not want to remember, the imperative mood is a command. This is something you must do. 
It's not as if I am somehow the recipient of something that I didn't have anything to do with, that God just endows me with it. This is something that God expects me to do. It's a command. And something else that is different than the filling that occurred, there it was in a tense which was a one-time possession. This is continuous, a present tense. So he's literally saying, keep on being filled with the Spirit. What follows in verses 19 through 21 are five participles. I told you I was going to dig a little deeper today. You don't remember from your English class, and it's a little bit different in Greek. These are called participle of means. And let me explain to you what that means so you won't misunderstand what's being said. When you have a lead verb followed by several participles, those participles explain the means by which this is accomplished. Let me give you another illustration in the Bible. I think you can see it very well. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. When you have a verb, make disciples, and you have participles, I-N-G words that follow it, those are explaining it. When he says, be filled with the Spirit, there's a command. Then he comes with five I-N-G words. Five participles, which explain how this is accomplished. And so what are they in verses 19 through 21? Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks to God, or always to all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in fear. That's how you and I are filled with the Spirit. That's the explanation, not that I provided, but which Paul provided by the direction of the Holy Spirit. This is what you're supposed to do, and here's how you do it. Let me take just a few moments to talk about some lessons that can be learned from that. Speaking indicates that the words that we sing are important. I'm not minimizing how valuable it is to carry a tune. Some of you are much more talented than the rest of us in the ability to sing on key and the ability to uh, have a beautiful voice. But let me tell you, that's not the emphasis that the Bible places upon it. The Bible places emphasis on the words that we sing. And so as we sing them, we need to be thinking about the words that we sing. To the harvest fields, I will gladly go in the service of my King. We will sing in just a few moments. I am resolved to enter the kingdom. To one another indicates that this is mutual. 
whenever you find the one another passages in the Bible, indicates that these are things that we do to and for one another. It's called reciprocal. It's mutual. And what that means is that choirs and solos can't fulfill this. We can't put a group of people up here behind the stage and allow them to do our singing for us. Because this is something we do to one another. It's a congregational activity. I feel sorry for those of you who are choosing not to sing. Because you're not fulfilling God's command to be filled with the Spirit. The type of songs to be sung must have, ought to have, an instructive spiritual message. A few years ago, I had a gentleman argue with me that we ought to be singing patriotic songs in our worship. He wasn't satisfied with my answer, so he approached some of the song leaders. We ought to be singing some patriotic songs during our worship. Song leaders also rejected that idea. So he sent letters to the elders. We ought to be singing. And the truth is, folks, I love patriotic songs. I, I think the Star Spangled Banner is a beautiful song. Love to sing it. But it has no place here. Because we're not here to elevate, honor our country. We're here to elevate and honor our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when you start thinking about that, whenever we lose sight of the fact that this is all about God, and we have missed one of the most important things. Next, the heart must be involved. Singing and making melody in the heart. You see, I can make a beautiful noise with my mouth and yet fail to make the melody in my heart. And I may not be able to carry a tune in the bucket. But if I am singing and making melody in my heart, the Lord sees my heart and that's what He listens to. And that's what He's pleased with. The giving of thanks can be done in song, but it need not be limited to it because he says it's always in all things. When Paul wrote the Colossians, he said, in whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Or Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Therefore, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. Yes, we ought to when we gather here thank God. But that ought not be the only time we do that. Being submissive to one another will require humility. Philippians 2 and verse 3, Paul said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each 
esteem others better than himself. It's hard, folks, to always put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. But a spiritually filled person is one who is saying, I've got to submit myself to the good of the congregation. Jesus did that. The most spiritual person ever to walk this planet. It's very important to remember that in all of this we are members of one another. When you study the Bible, let me tell you, here's the perspective that Paul wants you to draw from this. There is a horizontal plane that we are members of one another. We speak to one another. We sing to one another. And then there is that vertical aspect that all of us offer this up to God as a praise and adoration to Him. Being members of one another indicates that we recognize that we're all in this together. Sometimes we betray ourselves when we speak of the church as you people. It's not you people, it's us. It's we. In Ephesians 4.25, Paul says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We're in this together, folks. There are times in the Bible when people were filled by the Spirit of God and they had nothing to do with that choice. That is God sending the Spirit upon them. I can tell you several of them. Caiaphas prophesied because he was high priest. Balaam's donkey spoke because God allowed that donkey to speak. Balaam himself was not a righteous man, but God allowed him to speak his message. The filling of the Spirit here is not that kind of filling where a person has a miraculous thing. Here it is a command to be obeyed and thus requires action. And it is a different kind of being filled with the Spirit. One should seek fulfillment in worship of God and not in a bottle. Not with a person pursuing the drunkenness and the debauchery and everything that goes with that. If you'll take your songbooks out now and prepare to sing the song, I Am Resolved. It may be that you are resolved to continue to walk in the upward righteous way of life, being circumspect in your choices, being conscious of God's will, and consecrated to God's service. It may be that this song, however, though, because we sing it to one another, pricks your heart and makes you think about the directions that you have chosen and make you respond to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you need to become a Christian through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, or as a child of God to return, please come as we stand and sing.